0: From 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR, this is Lake Effect. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Today, we'll learn about the Black Cross nurses and an exhibit about their work. Then we'll tell you about an app that can help boost your Black history knowledge.
1: People that we're talking about aren't as distant in African-American history. You can learn about people that your grandmother grew up with, that your cousin knew that your nephew perhaps worked with or your grandfather.
0: Plus, learn about the documentary American Reckoning, which investigates the unsolved murder of a civil rights activist in Mississippi.
1: The civil rights movement
2: is often a tale of a few iconic figures, but there were actually foot soldiers all over communities, all over America, and especially in the South in the 60s, and this is one of those stories.
0: All that's coming up on Lake Effect, but first, here are today's headlines. This is Lake Effect from 89.7 WUWM Milwaukee's NPR. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Thanks for joining us. Today, we celebrate the first day of Black History Month with several stories, including a look at two projects that help you explore the black history of Milwaukee. We'll start with this. In the 1920s, amidst an international pandemic, rising rates of tuberculosis and smallpox, and racial disparities in health outcomes, the Black Cross Nurses were founded the Black Cross nurses trained Black people to become traveling nurses that met the needs of Black residents across the Western Hemisphere that were ignored by establishment public health institutions. Do for Self, the Story of Milwaukee's Black Cross Nurses is an exhibit at the Wisconsin Black Historical Society that chronicles the foundation of the Black Cross Nurses here in Milwaukee. Lake Effect Sam Woods visited the exhibit to learn about the nurses from museum staff as well as met with today's healthcare workers who see themselves in the exhibit.
3: Vanessa Johnson was born two months early, at just over two pounds. Her mother was visiting Milwaukee during the 4th of July, when she went into labor, while everyone around her dismissed her concerns.
4: And so, as you can suspect, she's coming here to just enjoy the holiday, and she went into labor. And no one believed her. They didn't think she was um, in labor. They told my father that he can go back to Indiana because... My mother's just constipated. And so she was left to be alone in a hospital room, laboring for hours at a time. And it wasn't until about eight hours or so later that the doctor finally came in the room to check on her and they could see me, I was coming out. And so it was; they were frantic and like, oh my goodness. And um, I was born. Today,
3: Vanessa is a reproductive health lactation nurse doula birth worker, and yoga instructor, with an emphasis on prenatal and postpartum health. She says that she chose this work due to her birth story and how her mother was largely left alone and ignored while Vanessa was born.
4: And so in, a, in an unfamiliar place, ill prepared, not being listened to. And as a Black woman, you know, birthing in the 70s, the idea of not being listened to, your voice not being heard— is still continuing to this day. And so I really felt like somehow, some way, if I could provide a sense of peace in that moment for other families, then like job well done.
3: But when I met Vanessa, she was fighting back tears of joy as we were both learning about Milwaukee's long history of black healthcare workers volunteering to provide medical care for black residents and combat racial disparities in health outcomes over 100 years ago. We were at the Wisconsin Black Historical Society Museum's new exhibit, Do for Self, the Story of Milwaukee's Black Cross Nurses. The exhibit chronicles the foundation and story of the Milwaukee chapter of the Black Cross Nurses, which was a group of black nurses dedicated to providing public health services to black people, with chapters in Milwaukee as well as places as far away as Nova Scotia and Panama. But before we get into the Milwaukee chapter of the Black Cross Nurses and Vanessa's connection to them, we need to establish some context, starting a little over a hundred years ago with Marcus Garvey and the UNIA.
5: Hello citizens of Africa, I greet you in the name of the Universal Negro Improvement Association and African Communities League of the World. You may ask, what organization is that? It is for me to inform you that the Universal Negro Improvement Association is an organization that seeks to unite into one solid body The 400 million Negroes of the world. That's
3: Marcus Garvey, speaking in 1921 about the goals of a new organization he had founded, the Universal Negro Improvement Association, or UNIA. Starting in Garvey's home country of Jamaica, the long-term goals of the UNIA centered on political and economic autonomy for the black diaspora, and encouraged a self-reliant black nationalism. This is where the exhibit's Do for Self title comes from. Now, at the same time that the UNIA was getting going, and Marcus Garvey was recording this speech in the early 1920s, the need for adequate public health services was impossible to ignore.
5: Every year in America, there are more than 100,000 new cases of
3: tuberculosis. Of all infectious diseases, tuberculosis is still the greatest killer. Tuberculosis, measles, and smallpox remain prevalent, and the flu pandemic of 1918 caught the world by surprise in a manner similar to COVID-19, leading to thousands of people dying and the widespread use of masks and social distancing. Public health institutions like the American Red Cross were in place to aid in these emergencies, but black people did not receive the same level of care as white people from these types of establishment institutions. So, in 1920, Henrietta Vinton Davis, a UNIA member and follower of Marcus Garvey, founded the first chapter of the Black Cross Nurses in Philadelphia. Soon, Black Cross Nurse chapters popped up in conjunction with the UNIA all over North and Central America and the Caribbean. As Claiborne Benson, historian and executive director of the Wisconsin Black Historical Society, explains, the Black Cross Nurses took Garvey's do-for-self idea and applied it to public health. They performed regular home and hospital visits, administered needed medicine, and cared for pregnant women and new mothers who were
5: ignored by establishment health institutions. The Black Cross nurses served that purpose by going to their homes, by uh, treating them in their beds and, uh, and, and caring for the issues that existed inside their house that makes their wellness becoming reality through clean house and through dishwashers and children. And But they did, even more than that, many of them delivered babies, and they uh, they brought medicines from the drugstore to solve people's problems. They did all sorts of things because they actually cared about the people themselves. They saw it as uh, being part of the Marcus Garvey movement, number one, and number two, helping to solve the problems of our people, and that being health issues, tuberculosis, when others did not want to or were reluctant to uh, treat out people. Milwaukee would get its chapter of the Black
3: Cross Nurses in 1921, when Hattie Fountain, a member of Milwaukee's UNIA chapter, started organizing volunteers to start a chapter here. Not only did Hattie start the chapter, but she kept detailed notes of the nurses' activities here in Milwaukee, which provide the basis for the exhibit on now at the Wisconsin Black Historical Society. In her diary, Hattie describes making house calls, seeing people in her home, and traveling to hospitals to visit people sick with various ailments. She also documents going to the train station to give smallpox inoculations, how the Black Cross nurses performed services similar to birth doulas, who would guide people through caring for themselves during pregnancy, as well as organize mutual aid for new mothers. The diary also described day-to-day life working for the UNIA, from cataloging membership certificates and meeting notes to stories of police raids in her home. As Wisconsin Black Historical Society Program Director Jamila Benson explains, this type of day-to-day documentation of Black Cross nurse activities in the 1920s is rare anywhere, despite the organization having chapters in dozens of countries.
4: It's really exciting. There are historians who are going to find out that this is actually written and want to know more about it. I want to read what she wrote. Um, because in my, in my studies and in my research about Black Cross nurses, there's very little. Um, there's information on um, Lady Davis, who started the Black Cross nurses, but to talk about an individual nurse and her day-to-day activity is really rare.
3: The Black Cross nurses continued this work in Milwaukee until the early 1950s, when Wisconsin Senator Joseph McCarthy started fueling anti-communist suspicions nationwide. Here he is making a speech in Rhinelander, Wisconsin, using, quote, lumberjack tactics to hack away at alleged communist activity.
0: As long as I am in the Senate, this task is not going to become a dainty task. If anyone wants to come in and remove them in some dainty fashion, they're welcome to it. But in the absence of that, if lumberjack tactics are the only kind of tactics, that crowd understands, and take my word for it, those are the kind of tactics we're going to use on them, as long as there is one there endangering the lives of 150 million American people.
3: Now, McCarthy tended to focus his tirades in the early 1950s on supposed communist infiltration of U.S. government agencies and the military, not in the UNIA or Black Cross Nurses specifically. However, over the years, his continued rhetoric fueled suspicion of these secret communist agents lurking everywhere, and Claiborne said that this caused the Black Cross nurses to fade away in Milwaukee, because they feared becoming political prisoners.
5: There were Black Cross nurses all the way through the 1950s, um, and it's the McAfee air that brings the fear in people, and the, they stopped attending meetings. I can't tell you that they were Black Cross nurses uh, during that period of time, but they were members of the Marcus Garvey movement, and they stayed true to Marcus Garvey. How could you not when you get slogans like, up you mighty race, be strong, take care of yourself, do for self!" These are words of significance to African Americans, and they respected and appreciated them, but they did not want to go to jail. Because the uh, the FBI and other government agencies would press people with, what are you doing? What are you guys saying in this meeting? That kind of thing. And, that, and that's the one thing that stopped the movement. Now, that's in the early 1950s, early, early 1950s. But throughout the 30s and the 40s, uh, the microscopy movement is still alive.
3: But if you ask Vanessa Johnson, who we met at the beginning of the segment, about the impact of the Black Cross nurses, She'd say their lessons and their experience live on. Beginning from her birth, where her mother did not receive adequate health care, to her work now as a nurse and doula, Johnson saw herself in the exhibit. She saw herself in both the obstacles that she and the Black Cross nurses faced, and in the shared resolution to improve Black health outcomes.
4: Across the health sector, you know, the disparities are through the roof, and so you know, it's important to to know the history, to know about all of the, the pioneers who came before us so that we can continue to do this work. Because it is, it is, um, it, can, it can weigh heavy on your heart, your spirit, on your mental health. Um, but to know that we are, again, from the work that was done, that we have made strides, that we have Uh, made advances, but to know that there's still so much more to do. We have to, we have to keep pushing and we have to keep fighting. And so that, that, that really drives me where um, I think there's a quote that says, you know, like we are our ancestors' wildest dreams, right? And so we can't give up. We have to keep going.
3: Do for Self, the story of Milwaukee's Black Cross nurses, is now on display at the Wisconsin Black Historical Society. For Lake Effect, I'm Sam Woods.
0: That was the Wisconsin Black Historical Society's Claiborne and Jamila Benson, as well as Vanessa Johnson, registered nurse and doula through her business, A Miracle Happened. Do for Self, the story of Milwaukee's Black Cross nurses is an exhibit on display at the Wisconsin Black Historical Society
5: me and Dorothy in the rain and the
0: by Peter Two long days there was announcing the parties with those majorities. They said that the king was listening. So nothing was missing. Traffic could not pass. Police had a task. It was the best Do you know the name of the African-American astronaut who was killed in the Challenger explosion? Do you know who the first woman to be inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame was? If you don't, There's an app for that. You can quiz yourself on black history in areas like writing, art, government, and even famous quotes with the Black History app. It was created by a Milwaukeean, Deborah Blanks after she raised her son Gerard to be a black history buff. WUWM's Mayan Silver spoke with the mother-son duo about the app.
1: My mother was a history teacher very briefly in her career. And so we lived on a black college campus because that's where my dad worked and So you're infused with Black culture down in the South in Raleigh, North Carolina. I really love history, especially Black history. And so uh, part of what I wanted to do with my son is to make sure that he valued history. So I came up with 500 history questions. I would put them in a notebook, and he would take them to study hall. And I think it was sixth and seventh grade, and study and come home every day he was excited asking me to ask him questions, ask him questions. That was really the genesis for us continuing year after year, decade after decade, refining, changing the questions, adding, testing. And so now we have what we are really proud of, Black history, but also what really was the impetus for me is I saw how it impacted Gerard. And I think I can take some credit for the dynamic, awesome man he is today, but I think it was, part of the foundation was Black history.
6: All right, Gerard, I'm gonna throw it to you. When you were a kid, tell me a little bit about what it was like going through this project. How did it work for you?
7: In middle school, the last class of the day was always study hall. Uh, Study hall was a very boring, (laughs) sort of aggravating time for, for me because I, didn't, I wasn't really into doing homework and so I was trying to find something to do during study hall and I would remember taking, my mother had this huge binder, um, you know, from, from the book she was writing and the chapters were, you know, she had the different chapters and then I remember she started breaking them down into questions, you know, she would take from each chapter and so I remember taking one of her huge binders one day i said i got to figure out something to do because i kept getting in trouble because you're not we, they were doing like silent study hall or something ridiculous and and i was trying to figure out what to do and so i said i remember one day i just grabbed it and said all right uh i'll i'll take this and so one day i'm just going through and i'm reading the questions reading the answers reading the questions answers as time goes on i start to realize like i, I memorize all of them <laughs> and so i know them. And so you know, during Black History Month or something, someone would ask a question and I knew the answer. And it was funny because I started to think like, oh, okay, all right, um, I like kind of knowing something. I wasn't a particularly good student. So it was it was just kind of became my thing, really, you know, And over time, I memorized hundreds and hundreds of questions. But here was the great thing though. It wasn't like, I was just memorizing questions and answers. I actually wanted to dig deeper. So it was like, if the question was who invented the cotton gin or who uh, invented uh, the the traffic light, I wanted to know more about uh, Eli Whitney or or Garrett Morgan. So what started off is me sort of, this weird sort of contest I was doing with myself turned into a lifelong sort of passion for black history learning about my culture and gaining knowledge.
6: That is fascinating. So there were, like, Deborah originally had around 500 questions. Now she has 1,000 questions. I want to ask both of you, and and Gerard, let's start with you. What's one of the questions or or one of the facts or pieces of information that lives in your head rent-free, that you're basically like, I love this fact. Like I is there anything that you <laughs> I, uh,
7: I, I wish I wish I could I don't I don't know for you, mom, maybe for you, but for me, I don't know. There's so many there have been times in my life where a question has come up and I was the only one in the room that knew it. So there have been moments where it was like and I would always think about my mother and experience growing up with her, but it was like Louis Lattimore and the carbon filament in the light bulb. I was out in LA at the Pan African Film Festival. This guy comes up to me and he's got this, this card game, It's black history, like it's a trivia game with questions and answers on it. So I, I buy it. And then he says, hey, but I also got this supplementary thing too. And I'm like, look, I'll buy the whole package if you can answer one question for me. He was like, all right, shoot. I said, okay, Edison is, Thomas Edison is um, celebrated as the inventor of the light bulb. But what black scientists helped invent the carbon filament that actually helped the bulb to grow, glow brighter and longer? And he said, Lewis Lattimore. I was like, oh, you got me. I th- <laughs> and so I had to buy the whole thing. I probably spent $50. But I was like, nobody knows that. And he knew it.
6: Nice. and and. This app is like a testament to Black history being a year-round endeavor and not just like a month-long endeavor. Why is it important to have those things available for people, both Black and from any other different culture or race or ethnicity?
1: Well, for me, and Gerard sort of didn't tell his whole story. I mean, he took a knowledge of Black history into his time at UWM. And he started with some other individuals, Dante McFadden and others, a group called Scope Creating Opportunities, Students Creating Opportunities to provide education and entertainment. He brought in Maya Angelou, he brought in Dr. Michael Eric Dyson, he brought in The Last Force, just infusing UWM with that culture and sharing that experience with others. Why is it important? From a Black perspective, I know I'm grateful, thankful, and proud to be a an African American. Our culture is awesome, our resilience is outstanding, our assets that we build on every day in the black community is something to really respect and value. And oftentimes you don't see that. Our culture, our existence is framed in a negative way when we really deserve so much more. Uh, And then from a a different perspective, I think it helps people who want to enter into our space, whether they wanna walk with us, work with us, Uh, It's good to know that they don't need to come in and rescue us or save us. We have so many assets and strengths that they can, if they want to support that, that's good. But it it helps to level the playing field as far as understanding who we are and what an awesome group of people we are and what our culture, uh, that foundation is that needs to be respected and valued.
6: Deborah, what are the biggest facts that live in your head rent-free?
1: Oh, uh, I was recently working with someone around issues of voter suppression, and so I remember the Texas white primaries, where actually Texas said that only white folks could vote in the primaries, and that was a way, of course, to disenfranchise a whole group of people. But I think for me, what happens is... I'm just amazed by the the richness of the history, but I love quotes because I, I like to think of myself as a good speaker. So Frederick Douglass has this quote that I'll murder a little bit, but it basically says we want to build up our youth so we don't have to repair old men. Yeah, and then the um, the Carter G. Woodson one, uh, you don't have to, if, if a person doesn't feel good about themselves. Again, I'm paraphrasing. Uh, you don't have to ask them to go to the back door. Their very nature will demand it. You know, so I'm in fascinated by these quotes from people, Regina King and others. Uh, just another quick one. Who is it? Mike Tyson. Everybody has a plan until they're punched in the face. Well, that, that
7: Carter G, I don't... You kind of beat up all of those quotes, Ma, just to be honest.
8: <laughs> but, the, but, the the G. Woodson,
7: but the Carter G. Woodson one is one that I, I distinctly remember. I remember you uh, saying that to me a number of times. And that, was, that one always stuck with me.
1: We make the important point. For me, it's not do you know every question exactly right? Do you know every answer? It's the essence because the essence is what we just talked about our pride in being who we are, our enthusiasm about sharing it, our understanding of the Black journey, but the Black assets, the Black wisdom, uh, as as, as well as the Black struggle. For me, that's Black history.
6: I read somewhere that you were gonna try to focus on Wisconsin Black history in addition to American Black history. The app is kind of currently right about American. Why would it be important to localize it?
1: Well, we've already developed or created 200 Wisconsin related um, questions. And for me, the idea is that you can focus on the broad history of America, but I think you you can connect in a different way when you're asking people questions about people that their family grew up knowing. And to give people a different sense of African, the African-American experience in Wisconsin. There were people uh, of African-American descent in different parts of Wisconsin. There were people doing great things in Madison, in Lake Geneva, all over in Racine, Kenosha, and even in the northern part. And I wanted to help people understand that folks just didn't jump off the train. Black folks just didn't jump off the train and land in Milwaukee and stay here. We moved throughout uh, the state And the people that we're talking about aren't as uh, distant, perhaps, as in African American history. You can learn about people that your grandmother grew up with, that your cousin knew, that your nephew perhaps worked with or your grandfather. And so making it more perhaps near and dear to people um, was the goal.
6: Well, Deborah and Gerard Blanks, thank you for your contributions, both past, present, and future. And we look forward to hearing what you guys come up with next.
1: Thank Thank you, you. we do too. (laughs) (laughs) Yes.
7: (laughs) Thank you, it was nice talking to you.
0: Deborah Blanks and her son Gerard created the Black History app. They spoke with WUWM's Mayan Silver in 2022. Did you know you can listen to Lake Effect as a podcast? Search for Lake Effect wherever you get your podcast to download and listen on demand. You can also follow WUWM on Instagram where you'll find videos and pictures from news stories and Lake Effect interviews. In about 15 minutes, we'll learn about the Bronzeville Histories Project. But first, we'll speak with two Milwaukee filmmakers about their documentary that looks into the unsolved death of a civil rights leader in the 1960s. That's coming up on Like Effect on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. listening to Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. In 1967, Warless Jackson Sr. was killed by a bomb planted in his truck. Jackson was an NAACP leader in Natchez, Mississippi, a town known for Ku Klux Klan activity. His murder remains unsolved, and a documentary called American Reckoning explores how the events surrounding his death unfolded, Filmmakers Brad Lichtenstein and Yoruba Richin use rare archival footage from the 1960s to highlight the civil rights movement and Black resistance happening in Natchez. They both joined me in 2022 to talk about the film. So to start, why Natchez, Mississippi?
2: Well, uh, this is a project that actually dates back to 2014. And a brief little backstory, Um, Congressman John Lewis had a lot to do with why we made this film. I had met him uh, and first started what became a lifelong friendship when I was 15 years old, working for his first congressional campaign that was successful when he was elected back in 1985, 1986. And um, cut to many years later, I was in his office. We were talking about some different projects and his press secretary was with us, Brenda Jones, and she pointed me in the direction of the cases that were to be re-examined by the Emmett Till Act, which Congressman Lewis authored and which was passed in 2008. And then once he pointed me in that direction and I started looking at the different uh, people who were included on that list of cases, over 150, um, I saw that there were some in Natchez, Mississippi, and that there was this film, Black Natchez, that had been made during that time. And then a few phone calls after that discovered that there was all this footage that had been shot and not used in the film, but they were outtakes and that they actually included a lot of the story of Warless Jackson Sr. So that's kind of how we landed in Natchez and in the story of Warless Jackson.
0: Yoruba, could you share a little more about this rare archival footage and how you and Brad came together to be on this project?
9: Yeah, so Brad and I we met at a ITVS confab back in 2012, and then stayed in touch through the years. In 2016, we were both at Sundance, and um, we ran into each other, and we, as you want to do at Sundance, talked about projects we were pitching and projects we were working on and developing and trying to fundraise for, and Brad told me about American Reckoning. And I was immediately intrigued because of the story. And then he sent me the first trailer that he did, which was so powerful, and um, I saw this incredible archive footage that I'd never seen before, and that told the story of what was happening in Natchez at the time, which is story I did not know in terms of the civil rights struggle there. Uh, and then when I <clears throat> delved deeper and found out that the Deacons for Defense and Justice were part of this story, it really sealed the deal for me because I had um, heard of the Deacons and, uh, you know, knew a little bit about them, became kind of obsessed because they'd been so erased from our history and that their story was part of the American Reckoning story was really exciting to me. And that's how I came uh, to be involved in the project. And, And, you know, and here we are.
0: Yeah, as you mentioned, the Deacons for Defense and Justice, their story is often excluded and written out. And I'm sure, especially for many white audiences, this might be the first time they're even becoming aware of such a group. And it's really the, the black resistance to the white terrorism happening, and especially in Mississippi. Can you share a little more about the boycott of downtown Natchez? Because I feel like in, often in the American civil rights movement, it's centered or reduced to simply Martin Luther King Jr. and the nonviolent movement. But what was the strategy for the Deacons of Defense and Justice?
2: The boycott that you mentioned is a big piece of the story that we tell in American Reckoning, you know, central to the efforts that were going on with uh, the NAACP, which Worlis Jackson was the treasurer for. Um, and Charles Evers, Medgar Evers' brother, was the secretary for the entire state, and he was in matches central to their strategy to be able to get demands met and demands about access to education, access to public um, amenities, putting black police officers onto the force, things like that, um, was a boycott. And a boycott was necessary because the white power structure wasn't yielding in matches. And you know, I should point out that the civil rights movement is often a tale of a few iconic figures but there were actually foot soldiers all over communities, all over America, and especially in the South in the 60s. And this is one of those stories. The boycott is something that was so important because it's what changed the outcome of things. And the deacons, while they were not the organizers of the boycott, they helped to enforce the boycott. Um, and I'll pass it to Yoruba to talk a little bit about that.
9: Yeah, I mean, that's something that I found so fascinating. Uh, in making the film, that not only were the the deacons defending the community against white terrorism and clan violence, they had to enforce the boycott. You know, you have to make sure people aren't breaking it. And you know, Charles Ever has this line. He says, "You know, we have a right to discipline our own people. Sometimes this stuff isn't pretty in terms of how you make make change." Uh, but they made sure that Black people did not break the boycott. And the white business structure, power structure, uh, crumbled in a very short time period. And it's because of that uh, strict discipline around the boycott that changes were made. And they became a model for other boycotts uh, around Mississippi.
0: Brad, you mentioned this name, and we'll circle it back here. One key component of your film is the Jackson family. Uh, Their father, Warless Jackson Sr., was the treasurer of the local NAACP branch and the target of a second bombing in the same community in 1967. So how did you both come to know and be trusted by the Jackson family to help share their story?
2: Well, um, of course, every documentary involves a deep level of trust, and that's something that's earned over a period of time. When I first met Whirlist, this was before Yoruba was involved in the project, I went down to Natchez and really the only appointment I had was with Stanley Nelson, who's an investigative reporter that you meet in our film too because he investigated the the murderers. He investigated the Silver Dollar Group, a subset of the Klan that not only was responsible for Whirlist Jackson's murder, but for others as well. And um, you know, when I met uh, Whirlist Jr., I just said what I was interested in doing and suggested that if he was interested in talking more about it, just to come meet me at a park. And I went and, and hung out at this park because I, I guess I felt like it was really important that um, with something like this, you know, give him the space to reflect and think about if this is a conversation he wants to continue. Um, and he did come, thankfully, uh, to the park later that day. And one of the first things we did was just drive around Natchez. I just asked him to, sh- to share with me, you know, his version, his what what does Natchez look like to him? Um, and then I met his sister, I met Denise. And from there, we just grew a relationship. Eventually, uh, when Yoruba came on board, she got to know them as well. And, um, you know, now we're all in this together.
0: Yoruba, what struck you about the Jackson family?
9: Yeah, I mean, it was so, first off, it's such a responsibility to be entrusted with uh, stories that you're telling, uh, any story that you're telling, so you know, and especially this one um, that, you know, that is uh, so painful, so traumatic for the family. And so they were so generous with sharing their stories and giving us access to their emotions, to, uh, you know, what images they had. Um, documents that they had, and um, I'm so happy that um, it we finally got to do it because it took <laughs> it took a, a minute. Uh, but you know, part of the healing process, I think, is telling the story. I mean, that's what Denise has said, um, getting the story out there and uh, and honoring her father and the sacrifice that he's you know sacrificed his life for change. The other thing that struck me is how warless really tried to protect his children from the violence that was going on. Um, They didn't talk about it a lot. They didn't talk about what he was doing. Um, And this is in many Black families uh, because it's dangerous to talk about this stuff. It just was so striking to me that, you know, that he kept this part of his life, uh, his own. Um, He knew the danger and he was trying to protect his family. Well, and the fact that it was only one
0: generation removed and the Emmett Till legislation trying to bring justice to some of these families. And in the case of the Jackson family, there still aren't official answers. But what do you think your film offers to not just this family story, but this event and the many similar events like it?
9: I think it offers the, again, lifting up these families these foot soldiers of the movement who we don't hear about. And so lifting up, you know, Warless Jackson. And it also begs the question of what is justice? Since we are not going to get, the family's not gonna get, uh, you know, someone in jail for this, they're all dead. Uh, the people who did this, it begs us, forces us to ask the question, what is justice? And have a question about reparations. I mean, this, these were families that were hurt We're traumatized and reparations is about repair, right? And this and so many other stories is an example of where, you know, you would need to, we would really need to see, we really need to discuss what reparations would be and what do they want for reparations? Um, Some may want money, some may want, want services, some may want an honor, you know, a museum built in their honor. I mean, there are many different ways uh, that reparations should be understood, uh, and I think that this this film we, we you know we end with that we leave with that.
5: But the love I got that is-
0: Laun- Yoruba Richin and Brad Lichtenstein are the co-directors and co-producers of American Reckoning. We spoke when the documentary premiered in 2022. We want to I'll hear from you parents. as we gear up to cover local elections and the presidential election in November you can have a say in our 2024 election coverage by filling out our election survey. You can find a link at wuwm.com. What you tell us will help inform the stories that you hear on Lake Effect and WUWM. We'll take one more break and then tell you about a resource that maps important figures and places in Milwaukee's Bronzeville neighborhood. Keep listening to Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM.
1: On the river,
7: I bought my heart. In Nashville, Tennessee, I bought my
5: leg.
0: This is Like Effect on 89.7 WUWM. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. The history of many Milwaukee neighborhoods has been erased or replaced over time. But a project is educating people about the history of Milwaukee's Bronzeville neighborhood and sharing how the past has influenced the present. The Milwaukee Bronzeville Histories Project maps out where historic African-American figures lived and worked. It also pinpoints where longtime establishments existed, all through an app and website. Katanga Alexander led the research for the Milwaukee Bronzeville Histories Project. He spoke with former Lake Effect producer Mallory Chang.
10: Why did you want to create this resource? Why was this important to you?
8: Well, um, I have a background uh, looking at the generational crisis of joblessness in Milwaukee. Uh, And I'm a former school teacher, taught elementary, middle, and high school for 12 years. And after that, I went into human services uh, where I facilitated men in violence classes and uh, fatherhood classes. And from there, I moved into reentry work, where I was the coordinator of the Welcome Home Project. Uh, I worked with individuals who were deemed at highest risk to for recidivism, which means that they will be reincarcerated at a higher rate than others. So we we're working with a pretty sensitive uh, demographic, and. A lot of times the generational crisis of joblessness research that I have been working on coincided with the state of a lot of individuals who I have been working with. And so it took us to a how did we get here moment in, in history and what was there. And that led me to connect with Patricia Diggs, who is the publisher of the Bronzeville a Milwaukee Lifestyle Uh, a book uh, that her and Ivory Abina Black created talking about the uh, history or the historical neighborhood uh, they call Bronzeville. It went by multiple names uh, and sometimes no names at all. Uh, And so she had this idea of putting the the history into a digital platform, which kind of coincided with me at the time being a, a PhD student. Uh, I was connected with her on this project to do Milwaukee Bronzeville. So the roots of it is kind of twofold: my history plus being at the right place at the right time, connecting with Patricia Diggs and her vision for a digital platform for Milwaukee's Black history.
10: Yeah, and I just also want to talk a little bit about the map that you and Patricia Diggs put together for. Milwaukee Bronzeville History's website and app and a number of the featured people and places are physically outside of what Google Maps defines as Bronzeville in Milwaukee. And you talked a little bit about how in Milwaukee's history, there were different iterations of names of this area. How did you both define where Milwaukee's Bronzeville starts and ends for this historical resource?
8: So using the word Bronzeville is is complicated, and it also is controversial in certain circles. So the Bronzeville uh, neighborhood that's considered the Bronzeville neighborhood today has a different parameter than the Bronzeville of old. And and the reason I say it's complicated is because when we say the Bronzeville of old, uh, that neighborhood of old didn't necessarily use the term Bronzeville. So we, the Bronzeville is also a generic term that could be used to describe um, the African-American neighborhood. And there are Bronzevilles throughout the country. Uh, Now some places have taken on that name officially. And so what we do is we're kind of using Bronzeville name in three ways. One way to describe the physical neighborhood of the old, which has a different parameter than neighborhood of the new. The second way is we use the Bronzeville name generically, which just means the African-American neighborhood. And thirdly, we use Bronzeville as a term that periodically described the area uh, centered on Walnut Street. The new Bronzeville you could argue is either centered on third or centered on North Avenue. The old Bronzeville's core was Walnut Street. Um so that is how we differentiate the old with the new. With that being said, the way we use the term Bronzeville generically to mean African American community, it also encompasses what we call Bronzeville today, which is an African American community. So That is how we use Bronzeville kind of in a broadened sense.
10: With all of that in mind, which is great historical context to know, the evolution of the neighborhood has changed over the course of decades of the establishment of Bronzeville. We've had highways built through entire African-American Black communities in Milwaukee. How did you decide what histories to dive into and to feature?
8: What we wanted to tell with the website and that, is. we wanted to tell the stories of the places and the individuals who made the places uh, and by places I mean the businesses but also by place I mean the actual neighborhood like the parameter of the neighborhood is something historically we could look at and and, and see although if you look at it from a historical perspective the parameter was continually growing uh, even in it you know if you look at the community in 1920, you look at the community in 1946, we see the parameters even stretching, right? So it was a continuously adjusting, even a physical parameter of on, on the neighborhood. So what we wanted to tell though, is the stories of the people who made the neighborhood, the neighborhood, regardless of where it was located. And so we go in, we look at the businesses because there were a lot of businesses collectively in this area. Uh, there were people who were struggling and people who were thriving to get these businesses in in operation. So it wasn't a, from from a historical perspective, we could look at it and see like all oh, these people were giving businesses or something like that. These were people who made a way out of no way. And we wanted to tell the story of those individuals and also the individuals who supported them that made this this thing we call Bronzeville or this place that we recognize as a, a, a phenomenon.
10: Who are some of the people that that are featured on the website and the app, and what are some places that are featured on the app and website?
8: Every summer, the goal, and not, not even just every summer, but I should say every year, the goal is to continuously add people to the, the website. We feature what was then, and we also feature what is now. Uh, and the idea of it is to combat the argument that when the Federal Highway came through 43, which actually did disrupt the community that we're discussing, uh, and urban renewal policies were enacted, it uh, severely hindered the specific parameter uh, that we recognize historically as the Black community. But we argue through the milwaukee Bronzeville histories that the African-American community was not destroyed by those policies, it was altered. So it still existed. And what we use to make that central argument is the fact that we still see the same energy, the same effort, the same ideologies today. And in many ways, direct descendants to get to your question about who is on the website. We have people like Larry Hill, who had Larry's lunch at a restaurant in what we recognize as Bronzeville or the black community early on. And then we have today uh, descendants of of Larry Hill still doing the same thing that he was doing. On on the website, we have famous actors, uh, the first uh, African-American to win an Oscar. Uh, We have famous actors and, and sports players, advocates, Individuals who migrated to the city and struggled and fought to make improvement to the area of Milwaukee Um, and the list that we have on there now is going to grow every year.
10: Milwaukee's Bronzeville neighborhood is getting national recognition. In 2022, the New York Times named Milwaukee's Bronzeville neighborhood as a destination to visit. With all this national recognition, with the eyes on Milwaukee, how do you see visitors to the area or even other Milwaukeeans using this app when visiting the Bronzeville neighborhood or visiting this area of the city?
8: So what we did for the 2022 version of the Milwaukee-Brownsville Histories is we created a walking tour guide where individuals could actually take the map and walk the destinations and see what is there now and also look in the the map guide and see what was there before. Eventually, you will be able to use that map on your phone uh, where you can actually pull up from where you're at and it will bring up the images and history of what was there where you're standing. So the Milwaukee-Brownsville history's idea for people coming is continuing to grow and and be enhanced. And so what we what we do is we have that map right now and, and people can use that to see uh, the new and the old. And so we would like for people to really, really do about 50-50. You know, we, we want you to recognize what was here because what was here actually explains uh, what is there now. Uh, so when I say what was here, I mean what was here in the past. Um, and so it's important to recognize that the businesses that are in operation now, many of them are, are working off the efforts that were created or established in the old.
10: Kitonga, thank you so much for being here on Lake Effect to talk about uh, this wonderful project. I appreciate you being here today. Thank you so much.
8: Thank you.
0: Katonga Alexander was the lead researcher for Milwaukee Bronzeville Histories Project. He spoke with Lake Effect's Mallory Chang back in 2022. And that's Lake Effect for today. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Joy Powers, Sam Woods, and x Nunez join me in producing Lake Effect each week with help from Robert Larry. Becky Mortensen is our executive producer. We also heard from Chuck Kornbach, Eddie Morales, and Nadia Kelly from the WUWM news team this week. Jason Reavy is our studio engineer. Michelle Madernowski is our digital manager. Blair Navarra viegas is our digital editor. Trapper Shep wrote our theme music. If you missed any of Lake Effect this week, you can find all of our conversations at WUWM.com. If you'd like to take the show on the go, you can download the Like Effect podcast wherever you get your podcasts. On Monday's Like Effect, we'll have a special segment where we'll explain our approach to covering elections this year. Tune in at noon to hear a conversation between some of the members of our elections planning committee about how our plans came together and what you can expect to hear from us throughout the year. That's Monday at noon on Like Effect. Thank you so much for joining us today right here on Listener Supported 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR.